We'll hear argument next in 05-11284, Abdul-Kabir versus Quarterman, and 05-11287, Brewer versus Quarterman. Mr. Owen. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. When this Court granted review in mid-October in these consolidated cases, the cases exemplified the Fifth Circuit's settled approach to reviewing claims of error under this Court's 1989 decision in Henry versus Lionel. In both cases, the Court below uh, failed to take seriously the requirement that capital jurors have a meaningful basis for giving effect to the relevant mitigating qualities of a defendant's evidence. And in both cases, the Court below found as a factual matter, both against common sense and this Court's holdings, that reasonable jurors would regard evidence that a defendant had experienced significant mistreatment or abuse as a child or had mental impairments as an adult as reasons to find him less dangerous rather than more dangerous. But those opinions, however incorrect, no longer represent the Fifth Circuit's view of Penry. In mid-December, the Fifth Circuit decided in its in-bank decision in Nelson versus Quarterman to take a sharp turn away from its prior treatment of Penry claims and to follow instead this Court's guidance in Tenard and Smith. Uh, under such circumstances where the assumption that we imagine underlay this Court's decision to grant review in these cases has been so profoundly changed by an intervening decision of the Court below, we respectfully suggested by motion that the Court return these cases, vacate the judgments, return them to the Fifth Circuit for further consideration in light of the new opinion in Nelson. Why, when we're told that, that the State will surely challenge Nelson in this Court, and we already have the issue before us, so all that you would achieve is delay, just substituting the Nelson case for this one. I don't believe, Your Honor, that, that all that would be accomplished that, by that would be certainly not just delay. I think that if the Court chooses to wait for the State cert petition in Nelson, the Court could certainly put our cases aside and hold them awaiting Nelson. The Nelson cert petition should be filed by mid-March and then could make its judgment about whether to grant cert in Nelson or not. If it granted cert in Nelson, it could decide the three cases together. If it found that Nelson raised no questions that were worthy of review, it could uh, either proceed to decide these cases or send them back to the Fifth Circuit. Uh, I, I think that the State's position, though, Your Honor, is based on a, a misreading of Nelson. I think the State uh, has suggested to the Court that Nelson is, in the State's phrase, a narrow, fact-based decision. Uh, and I think that's not — I think that's not a fair characterization of the Nelson Well, holding. why can't we just read Nelson and then say, in these cases, whether or not it's correct? Um, I think the main reason, Your Honor, is that these cases aren't Nelson, and that Nelson, if it presents issues that are worthy of the Court's consideration, uh, that would be the better vehicle rather than trying to use, in effect, these cases to decide issues that are presented by a different set of facts. These cases aren't Nelson. That's a reason why we should decide these cases, it seems to me. Well, Your Honor, uh, I, am, I am confident that if the Court chooses to proceed to the merits in this case, that we will prevail on the merits. And so if I've Well, why don't you try and convince us of that? Then let me turn, let me turn to our, our merits, Your Honor. Um, the issue before the Court in this case, as we said, is whether the jury instructions gave the jurors a meaningful basis for considering the relevant mitigating qualities of these two defendants' mitigating evidence. In Mr. Brewer's case, that included the fact that he was hospitalized for treatment for a, a major episode of depression about three months before the murder, and the fact that the evidence indicated he had suffered 
serious abuse, serious physical and emotional abuse from his father as a teenager. In Mr. Cole's case, the evidence indicated that as a result of neglect and deprivation that he suffered as a child, he had himself uh, emotional problems, fragmented personality, chronic depression, enormous need for uh, nurturance, a lot of emotional turmoil and problems that continued into adulthood. And in addition to that, the expert who testified at Mr. Cole's trial uh, indicated that he had been given a set of uh, generally accepted neuropsychological tests and that on those tests he had scored uh, below normal and on some of them very far below normal into the fifth percentile. And as a result, that he probably suffers from some sort of central nervous system dysfunction, which limits his impulse control. We respectfully suggest that under this Court's decision in Penry, those are all the kinds of facts about these two defendants that could reasonably support a juror in concluding that a life sentence rather than the death penalty was an appropriate sentence. But because the jurors were never asked whether the mitigating evidence reduced the defendant's culpability in such a way as to call for a life sentence, the, the resulting death sentences are unreliable. The jurors are asked only two questions, as the Court well knows, but just to to review, under the pre-1991 Texas statute, jurors were only asked two questions. Was the crime committed deliberately, and is the defendant likely to pose a continuing threat to society? Uh, And those instructions alone, as has been mentioned earlier this morning, don't mention mitigating evidence. The verdict form doesn't mention mitigating evidence. And so this Court has held repeatedly that whether that two-question format satisfies the Eighth Amendment's individualized sentencing requirement is a matter of the evidence that's presented in a particular case, how it's argued to the jury, what are the jurors told about the meaning of their instructions. And we believe that in this case, uh, throughout the trial, in both of these cases, excuse me, throughout the trials, the jurors were emphatically told that they were not entitled in deciding the future dangerousness question to engage in any sort of broad inquiry into these defendants' moral culpability. Instead, the prosecutors in both cases made very clear to the jurors during jury selection that in answering the future dangerousness question, you must put to one side your opinion about whether the defendant's background, for example, calls for a particular sentence, and answer the question solely on, as the the prosecutor put it, the basis of the facts. And we feel that the evidence in this case very strongly would have supported the inference that these, both of these defendants, uh, were likely to be dangerous. How would you compare that evidence with the evidence in Penry itself? I I think you're right. These are closer cases than, than Penry, I think. You'd have to concede that, wouldn't you? Um, I, I think they are different cases, Your Honor. I'm not willing to concede that they are closer cases. I think that in, in the juror's mind, the only conclusion that could be drawn from the evidence in these cases is that the defendants are likely to be dangerous in the future. That is exactly the same conclusion that would have been compelled by the evidence in Penry. Uh, I think that... How does that... If, if the evidence... Suppose we think the evidence is weaker. It's still evidence of childhood abuse and mental disorder of some kind. And those are relevant mitigating factors. Absolutely, absolutely, Your Honor. If your case is less strong, then maybe the jury will decide it the other way. But it doesn't mean that those factors are not mitigating factors. 
I couldn't agree more, Your Honor. I think it's very clearly settled by Tenard and other cases going back to 1976 that facts like a deprived or abused background or mental impairment are certainly mitigating. And in further response to your — Tenard was decided after the State decision here, wasn't it? This Court's decision in Tenard postdates the State Court decisions in both cases. And this is an EDPA case, isn't it? Yes, Your Honor. So we're we're asking whether this State Court made an unreasonable decision at the time. And at the time, regardless of what the Fifth Circuit has now said, at the time, under Johnson and and, uh, uh, there's another earlier case, we said that you didn't have to uh, give full mitigating effects. As long as there was some manner in which mitigating effect could be given, that was enough. The Court has been consistent. So, I mean, don't, I think Tenard is utterly irrelevant, even if it is right. Which, which I, I, I don't agree, and here's why, Your Honor. Um, Tenard was itself both a habeas case and a case governed by the Anti-Terrorism Act, like these two cases. And so in Tenard, the Court was called on to decide not squarely the question of whether the State Court decision in that case had been objectively unreasonable, but whether a reasonable jurist could have found it to be objectively unreasonable such that a certificate of appealability was warranted. Mr. Tenard's case was decided by the State Court in 1997. So I think it is imminent in this Court's ruling in Tenard that at least as of 1997, it was apparent that uh, an IQ, a low IQ score alone implicated the concerns of Penry. Did Tenard purport to overrule Smith? Even when it came down, it, sim- it simply quoted uh, the language of, of Justice O'Connor's concurrence in an earlier case. Uh, it certainly didn't purport to overrule uh, Smith. I, I assume you're Johnson. I'm sorry, Johnson. Yes, um, and, and I and I, I know it didn't purport to overrule Johnson. And the reason why is this: I think the concept that ties this court's cases together on Penry is this concept of meaningful consideration, because. Your Honor focused on one bit of language from Johnson. The jury has to be able to give some effect. Elsewhere in the Johnson opinion, the Court said there has to be a meaningful basis for giving effect to the relevant mitigating qualities of the evidence. And I think neither of those two phrases can be read out of the context of the other. In other words, it can't just be some imaginable, conceivable, strained effect. It has to be some effect which speaks sensibly to the way that a juror would, would understand the evidence to relate to future dangerousness. In the Johnson case, the defendant's evidence was his chronological youth, and I believe that it, was, it is sensible for the Court to find that a reasonable juror could conclude that that uh, – its relevance to culpability and its relevance to future dangerousness are essentially coextensive. This case is not like that. And in well, Johnson, Brewer, wasn't there also, go ahead. wasn't there also uh, mitigating evidence about uh, a troubled about his troubled youth, which is analogous to, to what was involved at, at least well in both of these cases? Very little such evidence, Your Honor, in Mr. Johnson's case. And in that case, moreover, this court's question presented, the question on which it granted review, was limited to the question of age. So this court didn't reach or decide in Johnson the question of whether the other facts about Johnson's background that found their way before the jury might have been within the juror's effective reach. And I do think that the specific evidence in Johnson, again, was argued as a basis for a finding of non-dangerousness, of rehabilitatability. That's utterly untrue of the evidence in Mr. Brewer's case and Mr. Cole's case, where I think it's very clear that the evidence is being offered to to present some kind of explanation for the jurors about what caused these men to commit these terrible crimes. Not and in, and in, in Brewer's case, it's, uh, quoting the record, 
evidence of one hospitalization for a single episode of non-psychotic major depression. So it was certainly open for a jury to determine that is mitigating and not aggravating in, in assessing the likelihood that there was going to be further violent uh, behavior. I don't think Quite a bit different than Penry. I don't think that you can separate the diagnosis of depression, that even that one single episode of hospitalization for depression, from what the jury knew about Mr. Brewer's upbringing, from the fact that they knew that he had been hit by his father and the terms of his mother said numerous times. He was struck with the butt of a pistol. He was hit with a flashlight. He was hit with a stick of firewood. Uh, his father told him, if you ever raise your hand to me, you better kill me because I'll kill you. He saw his father bloody his mother and br bruise her eyes. And your submission, your submission mission is that every juror is, or a reasonable juror, is going to look at that, and the only conclusion they're going to draw is that he's more likely to be violent in the future, as opposed to the conclusion that there is mitigating evidence because of this, that they, he should, mercy should be shown to him in light of all this. And I just don't see how you can speculate which way the jury is going to go. I think that it's not simply speculation, Your Honor. I think that this Court recognized in Tenard, as it did in Penry, that when there is evidence of mental impairment before the jury, there is at least the probable inference of dangerousness. The amici before the Court, both the American Academy of uh, Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, on the one hand, the Child Welfare League of America, on the other, their amicus briefs, I think, really and really detailed the fact that this is a commonplace understanding in our society. And the reason that we know that, Your Honor, is what the prosecutor said in his closing argument, where he said to the jury, if you take a puppy and you beat that puppy, then he's going to bite, and he's going to bite as long as he lives, and there's nothing you can do to change that. Um, I think that where you that have was in, in Brewer. Now, there was no reliance or no similar statement by the prosecutor in uh, uh, Abdul Kabir or Mr. Cole's case. There was no so similar. Do we have statement. different results in these two consolidated cases? Uh, no, Your Honor. I think that this court's case in, in decision in Tenard, when it's talking about the inference of probable future dangerousness, this court says the jurors might well have believed that Mr. Tenard would be dangerous in the future, both as an inference to be drawn from the evidence and because the prosecutor expressly told them that's how they ought to regard the evidence. And in this case, we have the prosecutor, in Mr. Brewer's case, we have the prosecutor expressly telling the jury, just as the prosecutor did in Mr. Tenard's case, what is mitigating about so, this guy's so background. The, 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 my point is the absence of a similar, similar prosecutorial statement in the Cole case cuts against you. Um, it simply doesn't cut as far in favor of us, Your Honor. The fact that in Tenard, this Court said that from mental impairment, a probable inference of dangerous may be drawn, cuts squarely in our favor. And you don't even have to go to the level of inference. In Mr. Cole's case, his expert witnesses said the, the background experiences that this young man had make him dangerous. And they, they could not forecast exactly how long it might be before he would conceivably age out of that. But they said, as a 10 years, could be 15 years, could be 20 years. I mean, there's just, that doesn't give a reasonable juror as, if all you ask the jurors after they've heard that evidence is, is there a probability that this guy's going to be dangerous in the future? I think they feel compelled to say yes, even though they might say if they were broadly instructed. Well, there was evidence of abatement in that case that, the, that was before the jury. So that if you ask them, was it this person's fault in some moral sense that might affect whether they w wish to show mercy, and if you ask them whether he's going to grow out of it, they might well say it was not his fault because of this brain disorder, and he's going to grow out of it, and that was the evidence, and so we're not going to sentence him to death. I think that, that 
It's not inconceivable that a juror could have reasoned in that fashion, but I think it is not reasonably probable. I think that this Court's decisions in Penry and Tenard suggest that a juror's commonsensical response to evidence that a defendant has uh, it presently poses a grave danger as a result of his life experiences and the enduring impacts that they have left upon him, the reasonable response of a juror shown such evidence is to find future dangerousness, and that that is the, precisely the problem with the pre-1991 Texas sentencing statute. If we had a broad mitigating evidence issue like the one that's presently given to Texas juries, then we could all be confident that the jury had engaged in precisely the reasoning that the Court, uh, that the court is, is, is hypothesizing, that they looked at the evidence and said, Yes, he's dangerous, but he's also deserving of something less than death, so we will accomplish that by answering this issue in a certain way. But in Penry, we didn't establish a per se rule. We said it depends upon the evidence, it depends upon the instructions, it depends upon what the prosecutors say. It seems to me that you're arguing for an absolute rule. I don't know, Your Honor, and don't let me, let, please don't let me be misunderstood. I, I do not believe this is a per se rule. I think Johnson stands with our case. I think that Graham stands with our case. Uh, I think that there's no, there's no need for the court to, uh, to, to change anything other than to, you know, it doesn't have to change anything about its existing approach to Penry for our clients to prevail. Because I think that if, if, uh, if the court looks at this evidence and concludes that a reasonable juror approaching this, that there's no reasonable probability that they would have, would have felt constrained to find him to be a future danger, then we lose. But I don't think you can look at this record and see that. But it's not no reasonable probability. That's not the standard. The standard under Smith is whether the juries can consider this mitigating evidence in some manner. I think, Your Honor, that, again, that, that, that removing that language from Smith from the language in uh, if you're talking about Johnson, I know you're referring to Johnson, and there, that the language in Johnson about some effect can't be separated from the language about meaningful effect. It's actually and, even uh, one step removed from that. I'm uh, sorry, Your Honor. I say the actual question is even one step removed. It's whether it is unreasonable uh, and, and to I think conclude that it is, otherwise than what you conclude. Not just wrong. That's correct. And but I, and unreasonable. I think, that's correct, and I think that it is unreasonable. I think that the state court in this case had essentially two lines of authority that it was trying to decide which one controlled this case. It had Penry, which involved evidence of mental impairment and child abuse, and it had Johnson and Graham, which involved evidence of youth and other background. And I think that the facts of these cases, given the facts of these two cases, it is objectively unreasonable to say they fit over here with Johnson and Graham rather than they fit over here with Penry. And that's why I think the decisions by the state courts are not just wrong, but objectively unreasonable. If the Court has no further questions, uh, I will reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Owen. Mr. Marshall. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, when the State Court considered these Penry claims in 1994, 1999, and January 2001, this Court's decisions in Graham and Johnson made it clear that the Eighth Amendment requires only that a jury be able to consider mitigating evidence in some manner, not in every conceivable manner. This is because virtually any mitigating evidence may be viewed as relevant to moral culpability apart from its relevance to these Texas special issues. Cole and Brewer, with sizzling bright IQ scores of 121 and 115, dysfunctional childhoods and depression, are much more like the troubled childhood and youth evidence in Graham and Johnson than the mental retardation, brain damage, and severe child abuse evidence in Penry. Equating it's these the facts to Penry. Kind, it's the same kind of evidence. It may be weaker. In other words, it's not evidence of good deeds in the community. 
It's two specific kinds of evidence, the very kinds of evidence that were involved in Henry. You can argue about whether this was weaker, but it's certainly different from use and reputation for good character. Well, I disagree, Your Honor. In, in, in Graham in particular, the Court was not just considering youth. The Court was considering a troubled childhood, a difficult childhood in which uh, Graham's mother had been hospitalized with a mental illness. His custody shifted from, from relative to relative. That's exactly the same kind of evidence we but have he was, But the emphasis was that he didn't react hostily. He didn't do bad deeds. On the contrary, he was gentle, kind, God-fearing, and that's why the jury should regard the murder as aberrational. That's what was the Graham picture, whereas here we're dealing with people who are dangerous. Well, Your Honor, that's not the way counsel argued it to the jury in either case. In both of these cases, defense counsel presented his case to the jury during, through his evidence and his argument that this was youthful indiscretion or it was an aberration, that it wouldn't happen again, which is exactly what How, Graham. What other choice did defense counsel have, given that the jury is going to get a question, is this man likely to be a danger in the future? How, what else could counsel argue? Well, Justice Ginsburg, that, that's not the question before the Court. The, the question before the Court is whether the Eighth Amendment was violated and, and whether the jury had a reasonable opportunity. And in, yes, well, in, maybe Hemming counsel into those two questions is what violates the Eighth Amendment. Instead of doing what Texas now does and says, jury, the mitigating evidence is for you to judge. We're not going to bottle it up inside of two special questions. Respectfully, Justice Ginsburg, that's not the question before the Court, though. We're, we're trying to determine in this case whether the State Courts unreasonably determined that these juries had a fair opportunity to consider that evidence. And I think looking at argument, when we're determining the reasonableness of that decision, looking at counsel's argument is all we have to go on in determining whether the jury had a fair shot. Now, I think if you look back at the but, 90s... But, I mean, realistically, a, a defense counsel who knows that the jury is going to have those two questions, he's got to fit his argument to the jury into those questions. Your Honor, that was a strategic choice, though. This is not a Sixth Amendment claim. We're, we're looking at the Eighth Amendment now. And so what counsel, what counsel chose to do is not the question. We're looking at what he did, and, and we, we've got this record. We're looking record at what with. Texas law forced him to do. I don't think that's the issue before the Court, Your Honor. I think what we're looking at is whether he, the jury had a fair opportunity here, regardless of what counsel chose not to do or what the statute forced him to do. The, the fact is, when the state courts looked at these claims, in 1994 and 1999, this evidence was much more like Graham than it was like Penry. And it was reasonable for them to decide that there was no Penry error in these cases because of that fact. And I think it's worth mentioning that if that's not the case, then I think we've arrived at the point where Penry has swallowed the rule announced in Jurek 31 years ago, and it, it, to which it was only supposed to be an exception. Jurek was a facial challenge, and the Court said, now, on its face, we can see that there are things that would fit into it. Good character would fit into it. But, Jurek said, as applied, we're not, certainly not ruling on that. All we're saying is it doesn't fall on its face. And then, as cases come up, the law is filled out. 
But that, Jurek doesn't say Jurek didn't say across the board. It's enough that there are these two special factors that everything can be squeezed into them. All mitigating evidence, one way or another, can be squeezed into them. That is correct, Your Honor. Jurek was a facial challenge, but in Johnson and Graham, the court made it pretty clear, I think, that as long as the evidence is relevant in some way within those special issues, I some thought, mitigating. I thought way. in Johnson the only question presented was age. In in Johnson, Your Honor, youth was the central point of Johnson, but Graham involved youth and a distinctly troubled childhood, much like we have in these cases. And but, so if that evidence was relevant within future dangerousness and did not amount to Eighth Amendment error, then this evidence has to be just as relevant. And, in fact, we have another layer of, of analysis on top of this because we're looking at the state court's decision under EDPA. I don't see how this fits in the Graham package. Uh, the Graham is this child came from a deprived background but managed to survive it, and he fits right into the category. He's not dangerous. Look at all the bad things that were done to him. It turns out not to be dangerous. Apart from this one murder, he's been a good boy. That's not the picture in either of these cases. That's essentially the picture of Justice Ginsburg and Brewer. Uh, that's exactly the way counsel presented it to the jury. But not only did counsel argue that he wasn't going to be dangerous uh, despite his childhood shortcomings, uh, there was a deliberateness definition submitted in the Brewer case, which is what this Court suggested in, in Penry in 1989 might remedy this problem. And so the court submitted a, a definition of deliberateness, and counsel argued it to the jury. The, the definition was read to the jury. Counsel where, where, argued, is the, where is that charge? With it? it appears at page 90 of the joint appendix, Your Honor. That's the Brewer joint appendix. Now, counsel read that definition to the jury, and the definition reads as follows. A manner of doing an act characterized by or resulting from careful and thorough consideration characterized by awareness of the consequences, willful, slow, unhurried, and steady, as though allowing time for a decision. Now, counsel read that definition to the jury during his closing argument. He argued that Brewer's crime reflected poor planning and execution, that he was led into it by other uh, actors, by, by, by his girlfriend, Christy Nystrom, and that his commitment to a mental hospital and his mental illness, depression in this case, uh, were, were argued specifically as cause for those uh, faults. And so counsel related the evidence within that deliberateness instruction uh, to the jury, and that provided them with a significant vehicle to give effect to this evidence. Is, is that what the Penry Court was talking about, something like what you just read? I think so, Your Honor. And the Penry Court was not specific about what that definition should say, but this is certainly uh, uh, helpful to the jury in, in this case. In, in, in taking account some of this evidence that was before it. But you see, in, in Johnson, the court is confronted with the special issues, and it makes the assumption, based on the state's representation there, uh, that the special issues had enough latitude for the jury to fully consider this. But what has happened in these cases is that the prosecutors uh, tell the jury, they keep reminding the jury, you just must answer special issues one and two as given. And in the Cole case, uh, they say even though you felt maybe he'd had a rough time as a kid, um, you still must put that out of the mind, of your mind, and just go by, by the special issues. And, and that's the concern in these cases. 
That may be a concern, Justice Kennedy, but the Cole case provides a particular example of how defense counsel countered that argument. Seventy-five percent of his argument, which is between pages 141 and 144 of the Cole Joint Appendix, 75 percent of that argument uh, is that Cole will burn out as he grows older, and that's based on the testimony of his experts. And he says that burnout, that likeliness that he will not be dangerous but, but is that, a reasonable But that's because point. the issues confine him to that. That's correct, Your Honor, but, but that's a legitimate argument on the evidence here, and I think that it would be it, — it's difficult, in my mind anyway, to, to determine that the State Court, in reading Graham and Johnson, could unreasonably determine that that wasn't a good vehicle for the jury. When he says, uh, you have a reasonable doubt about this man's dangerousness because of the testimony that we presented to you from his experts that said he wouldn't be dangerous. He's 30 years old, and the testimony is 40, 50 it says, jury, for 10 years, this man is going to be walking in, in prison corridors, and he's going to be a danger for at least 10 years. And that's an effective? Justice Ginsburg, that's easily as effective as, the, as youth was in Graham and Johnson. Youth is, is evidence that, I mean, we don't know how long it takes people to grow out of youth, but certainly 10 years wouldn't be unreasonable under the circumstances in that case. And so I don't see any difference between youth and burnout in, 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 in this context. We're talking about a finite amount of time. We don't know exactly what that amount of time is, but it's certainly reasonable for a jury to give mitigating effect to it under that question. Mr. Marshall, I heard what you read from this charge, and I don't have the exact words of what the Court was talking about in Henry, but it did say a special instruction that would enable the jury who believe Henry committed the crime deliberately, that he committed it deliberately, not slowly, whatever you just read, but also believe that his background and diminished mental capacity diminished his (coughs) moral culpability, making the imposition of the death sentence unwarranted. So what Henry said very clearly is, Yes, it's deliberate, but you give them a charge that tells them, even though it was deliberate, because of his abuse, because of his retardation, he is not morally culpable to the same extent as someone who doesn't have those impairments. That's the instruction that Henry said could be given, and that would be okay under the deliberateness, quite different from the instruction you read. It's, it's different, Your Honor, but I don't think it's that much different. And the reason is, is that this makes the, the crime a, a function of awareness of the consequences of slow and hurried consideration of those consequences. And then counsel argues to the jury that Brewer is unca- incapable of, of engaging in that sort of, of premeditation because of his mental problems. And so that's what reduces his culpability under the circumstances. And I think if you combine the argument and the definition, which we're bound to do under Boyd versus California. We're supposed to look at the entire context of the trial here. Uh, that that meets that suggestion in Penry. Uh, for it, it's not exactly what the court suggested. Did it, was there something about moral culpability in what you read? Uh, no, Your Honor. It, it, it's not and mentioned in this definition. Penry makes clear, it makes the distinction between these are factors that don't say he's not dangerous, don't say he didn't act deliberately, but says they reduce, or the jury may decide that they reduce his moral culpability. And And that's not what 
this charge was. This charge is different, and you're correct in that, Justice Ginsburg. However, future dangerousness also provides that vehicle in this case, just the same as it did in Graham. And so, and in Johnson, the, the Court said that, that this kind of evidence, that evidence of, of a troubled childhood, uh, could find effect within future dangerousness in some manner. And, and granted, we can conceive of other ways it might be relevant to culpability, but the Court explained, and this was what the, the State Court was working with at the time it considered this claim, it, th- this Court explained that just because we can imagine other ways in which it might be relevant doesn't mean that we've got Eighth Amendment error. It's just important that the jury had some way of getting to it. And in, I don't see how this is markedly different than the evidence that the Court said fit within future dangerousness in Graham. Now, in, I think another thing that I need to mention about uh, Cole is, is, is that uh, my colleague noted uh, the expert testimony that, that Cole lacked impulse control. Now, I think the, the mitigating nature of that testimony in this case becomes especially apparent when, when you realize that, that Cole planned this crime two days in advance. He planned to strangle the 66-year-old blind man two days before he did it. And so I don't think that an impulse control problem mitigates his culpability for this crime in any way, and I don't think any reasonable juror would ever see that. So I think that the mitigating significance of that evidence in this case is severely diminished, as opposed to the testimony that the, that the jury heard in Penry, for example, which is that he'll never learn from his mistakes. He'd previously committed a rape. Uh, he didn't learn from it. He, this time he committed a murder and a rape. And, and so the, the mitigating relevance of that evidence was only aggravating within future how do we? How does that factor in on the issues that are before us, the weakness of the, of, of the mitigating evidence? Um, in what way are we supposed to assess it? We don't have a harmless error question in these cases. There's no harmless error question, correct, Mr. Chief Justice. However, I think when we're looking at the Boyd standard, which is, and, and in Johnson, a reasonable likelihood that the jury was precluded from giving effect to the evidence, the reasonableness of that likelihood, the reasonableness of that possibility depends upon the way the, juror, the jury heard the evidence. And, and the relative strength of that evidence. And so uh, evidence of intoxication, for example, uh, uh, while it, it does uh, mitigate culpability in some manner, would not create the reasonable possibility of, of, of Eighth Amendment error in, in that sense. So your argument is that the, the mitigating evidence was not precluded by the in- reasonable consideration was not precluded by the instruction. It was precluded by the fact that there wasn't much mitigating evidence to begin with. That's correct, Your uh, but in addition to all of that, the, the state court uh, was looking at Penry and Graham when they decided this case, and, and there was no Penry II yet. There was no Tenard or Smith. And so it was reasonable for them to compare the evidence, the weight of that evidence, the strength of that evidence, to those cases and, and decide that it fell on the Graham and Johnson side of the line rather than the Penry side of the line. That's the only thing they could do at the time. But do you think the case would, should have been decided differently if it had been decided after those decisions? Well, Justice Stevens, if we take into account the full effect language that gets quoted in, yeah. in Penry too, it, we might well have a different result. But that wasn't the standard at the time. And under EDPA, we're, of course, we're those decisions didn't purport to change the law. Well, under Teague, they did not purport to change the law. But I think EDPA is a different inquiry here. We're looking at what clearly established law was at the time the state courts made their decisions and not necessarily what, you know, uh, what, what the Teague inquiry would be. And so at that point, I think it's pretty clear under Graham and Johnson we're looking at some effect. Whatever full effect means now, it doesn't apply to these cases. 
And I think that gets to the main point here. We're looking at an exceedingly ordinary fact pattern in a capital murder case in both of these cases. Uh, dysfunctional childhoods, uh, a, a small amount of abuse in Brewer, uh, uh, undis- uh, undescribed. I, I correct the, your, your position essentially is that, well, it may well be true that these instructions did not permit the jury to give full effect to this mitigating evidence. That was not clearly established law at the time of these decisions. That's correct, Justice Stevens. Yeah, that's your view. Were these decisions post-Johnson? Yes, Your Honor. In fact, uh, the Brewer case was decided the, the year after Johnson, and, and the, uh, the Cole case was decided in 1999. So the Court had not held forth on what Henry meant in a long time by that point. Graham and Johnson were the last clear statements the Court had made. Now I want to correct one misstatement by my opposing counsel uh, in Brewer. Uh, Brewer was — there are three distinct — episodes of abuse that, that, are, that appear in the record in that case, uh, that he was struck with a pistol by his father, struck with his fist, and struck with a flashlight. He was never struck with a stick of firewood, and that's on page 65 of the Joint Appendix. That's pretty clear. This isolated abuse that occurred late in life, uh, we don't know the exact time frame, but it could be as late as age 18 or 19, surely has different characteristics uh, in a jury's eyes that, than the evidence in Penry, which, in, in which the, the defendant was beat and uh, beat severely from a very young age, from his infancy, and that beating, that abuse, caused a, a brain damage or mental retardation. The ordinary nature of, of this evidence, in comparison is, is, to the is, exceptional — Are you suggesting that some kind of a psych, psychological um, expert would say that abuse as an adolescent is not as damaging as abuse as a young child? I'm not suggesting that, Your Honor. Uh, I'm just suggesting that this is a smaller amount of abuse than what was in Penry. You're suggesting that striking a big person is not quite as bad as striking a little person. And that may be true, Your Honor. If the question is one of the, the evidence was weak, why isn't that a harmless error question rather than a question of whether the jury can give it effect? Well, there is a uh, there is that reasonable likelihood standard built in under Boyd. Reasonable likelihood of of constitutional error. Well, the constitutional error is it is the reasonable likelihood. Yeah, reasonable, reasonable likelihood, likelihood of the what? jury was precluded from considering the relevant mitigating evidence. All right. So, so if the evidence is very weak, and if the instructions prevent you from considering it, then it's precluded. But if well, the evidence is very weak, it doesn't matter. Well, I think it's a reasonable reading of Graham and Johnson, though, Your Honor, that weak evidence uh, does fit within these special issues. That's what those cases held. They said that the jury could consider the evidence in some manner, and therefore there was no reasonable likelihood that they were precluded from doing so. So imagine you're a juror and you think to yourself, I see all this stuff about the childhood. Frankly, it doesn't move me insofar as his dangerousness. I think he's dangerous, and I also think he did it deliberately. And then you think to yourself, well, could I consider it because it shows a bad childhood and that is a deserving of a life term? I'm not sure it shows me that, but can I consider it for that purpose at all? What's my answer under Texas law? Well, Your Honor, the state court considering this case was looking at Graham in which the court stated that that evidence fit within future dangerousness. 
got to finish considering it for future dangerousness. Nope, doesn't move me. He's dangerous. Now I say to myself, can I consider it for the purpose of showing a bad childhood deserving of mercy, if you like? Can I consider it for that purpose? What's the answer under state law? Yes. The answer is no. Yes, Justice Breyer. The answer is yes. The answer is yes? The answer is yes because this Court said it was yes. This Court said that in Graham, the jury was free to accept counsel's suggestion that Graham's conduct was merely an aberration and, 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 that, and that he wouldn't do it again. That's exactly the way the case was argued to the jury by these two defense lawyers. Talking about future dangerousness, I'm talking about, I would be repeating myself. You've taken that in. I'm not talking about future dangerousness. The jurors decided that matter in your favor. I'm saying, does Texas law allow it? it you, you understood what I said, didn't you? Yes, yes. All right. And the answer is yes, you can take it in to show mercy. Yes, Your Honor. <clears throat> and, and what's the Texas case that says that? Your Honor, it's not a Texas case. It's this Court uh, in Graham and Johnson. This Court said that, that evidence of a troubled childhood, of, of, of the, the, the particular dysfunction that comes with youth, uh, can be taken as an aberration that the person but will not be did we say that in, in case of all childhood, in, in, in case of in every case of childhood abuse and so forth? The question is on or which side it of just the a, It was really applied just in, in the context of the Graham's evidence. Well, Your Honor, it's, in these cases, it's relevant for the same reasons it was in Graham. This evidence is not enough like Penry to warrant relief. Right, but, but, but the answer to Justice Breyer, it seems to me, has to be that you can only consider it in the, con- in the context of deliberateness or uh, future dangerousness. That's correct, Your Honor. And that depends on the nature of the evidence, I take it. I mean, if we — the evidence we were talking about was uh, a biological predisposition to violence, uh, that's only going to point in one direction, right? I mean, if it, the evidence is uh, isolated incidents, incidents of depression, the idea is that, well, a juror might look at that and say, well, that's why he did it, and that since it was isolated, it's not likely to come up again, and therefore it can be regarded as mitigating as well as aggravating. That's correct, Mr. Chief Justice. And so when you get into this evidence of child abuse, I mean, how are we supposed to decide if the evidence is sufficient so that anyone looking at it is going to say he's only going to do it again, or if someone's looking at it is going to say, well, there's an excuse for it and he's going to outgrow it? Do we make that determination in every case based on the particular evidence and the particular arguments that counsel made? I don't think there's any other way to do it, Mr. Chief Justice. This, this court has continually engaged in a, in a case-specific analysis on a case-by-case basis in these types of, uh, when regarding these types of claims. If the court has no further um, question. Unless you take the view that Penry took, <clears throat> you have to let the jury distinguish between dangerousness and deliberate conduct on the one hand and mitigation for mercy purposes that don't tie in at all to dangerousness. That's because, Justice Ginsburg, the, the Penry's evidence was relevant only in an aggravating way to those issues. It suggested nothing other than the fact that he would be a future danger. And when the evidence is not so aggravating, when the evidence suggested, suggests that there is a mitigating answer to the future dangerousness question that the person won't be a future danger because they're going to burn out or because this is an isolated incident, we have a different situation. Can you tell me, um, if you know, how many cases uh, in the Texas uh, system, capital cases, are pending 
that were decided before the legislature amended the instruction? Justice Kennedy, there are 47 inmates on Texas death row that were sentenced under the statute uh, that remain there. Uh, there are nine cases which have uh, litigated penury claims all the way to conclusion in federal court. There are 25 more that are somewhere in the pipeline, uh, uh, either in state court or federal court. Uh, I've, I've actually looked at the cases, and 17 of those cases, 17 of the 34 that are still in the system, uh, uh, have evidence that's almost identical to these cases. But that wasn't the question. Your question is that how many were before uh, or after? Uh, but, but, but I take it your answer was that all these were tried before Texas amended the statute. Was it 1991 when it amended the statute? Yes, Your Honor. All the cases you mentioned were tried before 1991? Yes, 47. Uh, 47 cases who were sentenced under this pre-1991 statute. If the Court has no further questions, I'd ask they affirm the judgment of the Court below. Thank you, Mr. Marshall. Uh, Mr. Owen, you have 12 minutes remaining. I'd like to make two points about Graham, since it's been a subject of some discussion. Uh, First is to remind the Court that Graham was a Teague case. Graham was a case about whether the law in 1984, prior to Penry, Mr. Graham's case became final on direct appeal, dictated the result that he was asking for, which uh, which I think doesn't mean it has no persuasive impact on these cases, but I certainly think it, it limits its presidential value outside the scope of the question of youth simplicity that Johnson later settled squarely. And the second thing I want to say about Graham is this is, this is the state's briefing, Graham, uh, 91-75-80, and I want to just note that at page 26, footnote 8, the state says, The insubstantiality of Graham's evidence of a troubled childhood is readily apparent, which certainly suggests that there's a fair reading of the evidence in Graham of his background evidence as not being substantial, not being evidence about abuse or mistreatment. Uh, The fact that he was moved from one relative to another because of the circumstances in his family uh, in that case was not shown to have any negative impact on him. Whereas I think in Mr. Cole's case, certainly, there's expert testimony that it had a very devastating negative impact on him. So Graham really does not even give the court much guidance on the question of troubled background because there's no indication that Graham actually had a uh, a background of mistreatment. by the same token, uh, with respect to the state's comment that, or my, my brother's comment that the, uh, the record doesn't bear out that Mr. Brewer was struck by his father with a stick, a stick of firewood, that is correct. Uh, the, what the record actually says is, if I may uh, quote from the Brewer JA at page 90, not 95, uh, 65, excuse me. He tried to hit him with a stick of firewood. Uh, when he went outside to grab the firewood, I, that's Mr. Brewer's mother, slammed the front door and locked it, and he smashed the glass out of the front door with the firewood. That was the night I had him arrested. Uh, how, so, how old was uh, Brewer at that time? I believe he was 15, Your Honor. Um, but I also, want to, I also want to emphasize that I think there, the fact is, the testimony is that Mr. Brewer was hit numerous times. That's his mom's word. Uh, hit with objects only twice. 
but hit numerous times. And I don't think the Court should also underestimate the significance of the evidence that Mr. Brewer saw his father brutalize his mother on many occasions, because that evidence, too, contributes. It's not just the difference between being hit and watching someone else being hit. Uh, I think everyone understands that there are enduring feelings of shame and guilt and, and uh, that the teenage But, but the argument feels- is that mm-hmm. a jury hearing this evidence in light of all the instructions will only conclude that the evidence shows that he will — be violent again. They, they will not feel that they can take it into account in any way to determine that it's a situation in which they should extend mercy or that, as uh, I guess it was, I, I get the coal and the Brewer records confused here, but the, the, that this, the cause for the violence will abate with, with age. I think, Your Honor, or that in, I guess, in Brewer's case in particular, that since the violence was caused by a particular bout of depression, that would not necessarily recur. I, I, I don't think that's that's not our argument. First, Your Honor, for this reason, um, the the court's question was. As I understand it, don't we have to show that there's no way the jury could have understood this evidence except as aggravating? And I don't think that's, I don't think that's the test. In Tenard, this court said, if the jury might well have considered the evidence as aggravating, well, that is not to implicate That was him. after it. I, I guess the question would be under Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, whether or not it could be considered in some manner. Uh, in some manner that is reasonable and that gives effect to the relevant mitigating qualities of the evidence. Yes, Your Honor. Uh, and, and I do think that the, that the fact of Mr. Brewer's um, the fact that the jury knew that he had endured this mistreatment as a teenager uh, could only have been given aggravating effect. I don't think there's any way to reason from the premise that he was mistreated physically and emotionally by his father when he was a teenager to the conclusion that, therefore, he'll be less dangerous in the future. Uh, that, that doesn't seem to me to be a reasonable connection. And I think that what the Court was calling for in Johnson was that there be some sensible link between the proffered mitigating evidence and these narrow questions, which, as has been pointed out already, uh, were the only options for the jury in this case. There was no there was no mercy option. There was no mitigation instruction. The jury was told solely these two and these two special issues. With respect to the Brewer uh, argument that there was a deliberateness instruction, I think Justice Ginsburg has it exactly right in observing that in Penry, what the court said was that to to satisfy the or to fix the deficit in the former Texas special issues, a definition of deliberateness would have to direct the jury's attention to the defendant's personal culpability. And I don't think this instruction does that. This instruction directs them to the sort of quantity of forethought. How much did he think about it? How long did he think about it? Did he mull it over? But I don't think that that captures the the moral culpability aspect that Penry says is required under the Eighth Amendment. Uh, if the Court has further questions, I'm happy to entertain them. Uh, otherwise, we would ask that the Court grant our motions. In the alternative, we would ask that the Court reverse the judgments in both cases with directions to reinstate the District Court's favorable judgment in Mr. Brewer's case and to grant habeas relief in Mr. Cole's case. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you, Mr. Owen. The case is submitted.